We've been working our way through the book of Luke, and so I encourage you to turn there again this morning. Uh, We find ourselves today in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. So turn to Luke 12, 35 through 48. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are watching for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers." And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Father, I pray that that last uh, half of that last verse would be our our watchword now. To whom much is given, much is required, and you've given us much. And you're about to give us even more spiritual food this morning. So help us use it well. Help us to be ready when Christ comes again or when it's our time to come to Him. Help us not to throw away these few years that we have on this earth, but to be dressed in readiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I almost feel as though sirens should be going off as we read Luke chapter 12 because this chapter is simply filled with words of warning. Filled with them. We saw one very serious warning in verse 5 last Sunday, didn't we? Where Jesus says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then we saw another warning Wednesday night in verse 15. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. And now after being warned to be afraid in verse 5 and to be on our guards in verse 15, Jesus warns us in verses 35 through 48 this morning to be ready. Be ready. But all throughout, I just want to point out, this is a serious chapter, a dead 
serious chapter filled with solemn warnings spoken to those even who are Jesus' disciples. And verses 35 and through 48 are no different. Be ready, he says. I think you'll agree that that's the main point of this entire section. Be dressed, verse 35, and in readiness. Be ready, he says again in verse 40. And then in verse 47, that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready will receive many lashes. Those verses sum up really the theme of this entire section. A section which comprises, as you may have noticed, three parables. Three stories that Jesus told to warn us to be ready. But then the question is, ready for what? Be ready for what? Well, for the fact that, like the master in verse 36, and like the thief in verse 39, and like the other master in verse 43, be ready because, verse 40, the Son of Man is coming, just like those other people. He's coming at an hour when you do not expect. That's what this passage is all about. It's a reminder that the Son of Man will someday return. And it's an exhortation to be ready when that day comes. And of course, it's also an exhortation to be ready when the day comes for you to depart this world in death if Jesus does not come before your day is done. But one way or the other, and perhaps sooner than you think, Jesus is saying you're going to meet your Maker. And each one of us needs to be ready for that day. And as I said, Jesus urges that readiness. He urges that kind of preparedness upon us in the form of three parables or three stories. The first one in verses 35 through 38 is about a collection of people who were indeed ready. The second parable in verses 39 through 40 is the story of some folks or of a man particularly who was not ready. And then the third parable in verses 41 through 48 is the sad tale of a servant or steward who is willfully negligent. Not only not ready, but willfully negligent. And Jesus poses those three possibilities for us to consider for ourselves. In other words, much like the men and women in these stories, when the master of the house returns, when King Jesus will come again to this earth, some of us, by God's grace, will be ready. Others of us, sadly, will not be ready. And then some people will even have been willfully negligent. Some people, that is, will have had every opportunity to be ready to meet their maker and yet will have foolishly squandered those opportunities away, even rebelliously squandered them away. So these three parables about these three groups of people will make up really the outline for the rest of our time this morning. There will be just three headings, one from each parable. The first heading, ready, from verses 35 through 38, and then not ready, verses 39 through 40, and then finally, willfully negligent from verses 41 through 48. So let's get started just by looking at that first parable. We'll call it again, ready. Ready, verses 35 through 38. And what Jesus tells in these verses is a story about a wealthy and probably an important man who has gone off to an evening wedding in verse 36. He's gone to attend this wedding 
and he's probably, after the wedding is over, going to shoot the breeze with his friends at the reception, maybe enjoy some nice appetizers, maybe even have a turn or two around the dance floor. But he's left his house, apparently, telling his servants, verse 38, that it was going to be quite late before he got home. It's going to be a long evening, he said. I'll be gone for quite some time. But instead of going to sleep at the normal hour, this man's devoted servants actually wait up for him. Isn't that what we read? They keep all their work clothes on, verse 35. They make sure that the lights are still on, verse 35, and that everything will be ready to go when the master of the house returns. They want to be ready in case he comes home and asks them to draw a hot bath or pour him a cold glass of water or fluff his pillows before he goes to bed or whatever it may be. In fact, at the end of verse 36, we discover that at least one of the servants stayed and took his place beside the door, ready to open it as soon as he heard his master knocking. Maybe if it had been a modern parable, he would be sitting at the window watching for the man's headlights as he came down the road. But whatever the case may be, these men and women were dressed in readiness when the boss came home. And Jesus says that when the man finally does arrive home, he's so delighted at how his servants waited up for him that he actually takes them all into the kitchen, verse 37, has them sit down at the table, puts on one of the servants' aprons himself, and fries up maybe some omelets so that they can all have a midnight snack. That's the picture here. He takes their role and he lets them sit down at his table and he serves them. It's quite a scene, isn't it? Given the time period in which I grew up, I can't help but picturing that mansion in the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, if any of you ever watched that show, and the butler, Jeffrey, and I see him sitting at Master William's table and enjoying being served instead of serving everyone. That's the picture. The butler is now the one who's being served by the master. It's a remarkable and an unusual picture that Jesus is painting in these four verses. The question is, what does it all mean? What is Jesus trying to teach us in this parable? Well, simply that if he should return to find his own servants as prepared and as eager as the men and women in this story, he himself will respond the same way as the master of the house responded in this story. Jesus is teaching us, in other words, that he loves to see his people dressed in readiness For his coming. He loves to see people living with the end in sight. He loves to see his people waiting and listening for his knock at the door, watching for his headlights, as it were. I had a friend in seminary who, in his younger years, had been so arrested, either by this parable or one of the other similar ones in the Gospels, that he would literally sit at his windowsill at night until the wee hours of the morning, watching for Jesus on the horizon. And while he eventually realized that there were other more productive ways that Jesus would have him to watch and to wait, I can't help but think that Jesus was pleased with his young heart as he sat in the windowsill. He wanted to be ready. And verse 37 teaches us that when Jesus returns and sees a heart like that one, he'll put on his servant's apron, as it were, and he will bend down to be a blessing to those who have been waiting and watching and serving him for so long. Men, women, boys and girls, Jesus will gird himself and will serve them who have served him. 
I don't know exactly what Jesus has in mind when he pictures himself as the master of the house with his apron on serving his servants. Perhaps he has in view the wedding supper of the Lamb someday that we will sit at if we're believers in Jesus. But I don't know for sure what he means except that he's going to come and he's going to bless us. And I do know this, he's already once before taken on the form of a bondservant and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, 5 and 6 tells us. And I know that if he was glad to condescend to serve us in that way, then surely the service that he will render, the blessing that he will pour out when he comes again, will be marvelous. So whatever it is, whatever service he has in mind, it's going to be marvelous. But the main point of this parable is not really what the master does for his servants when he returns. The main point of the parable is that the servants were so diligent and so faithful that the master's heart was moved with gratitude and joy when he did return. That's the main point. And isn't that service that we want to render to our Savior and our King? Don't we want, as the old song says, to work till Jesus comes? That's the point of the parable. Work till He comes, no matter how long it takes, no matter how late into the night it may seem. And don't we want to work so hard and like these people in the parable with such dedication that Jesus would be overwhelmed with pleasure when He comes and finds us waiting for Him? So let me just ask you, what's your job? In the master's house. What has Jesus given you to do with your time and your talents and your resources and your prayers? What would it mean for you to be dressed in readiness? You'll notice that the servants in this story didn't do anything creative and unusual. In other words, they didn't go out and buy their master a new living room suit while he was away at the party. They didn't have to dream up anything exotic to do to show him their faithfulness. No, when he returned, they were simply doing their jobs. They were wearing the work clothes that he had given them to do the jobs that he had given them to do. Just doing what they were supposed to be doing. Only with a zeal and a faithfulness and a willingness to go the extra mile that are far too uncommon in servants. Both in the servants of men and in the servants of God. So the point this morning is not that everyone here needs to be a missionary or a pastor or a street preacher or a teacher at Vacation Bible School. Some of us need to be that, but the point is that just like the servants in a great house, each of us has certain tasks, each of us has certain roles that we ought to be fulfilling for the furtherance of the gospel and for the advance of our God's kingdom. Each of us, just in the normal course of our lives in this world, has money that we ought to be sacrificially investing in the kingdom. Verse 33, we saw that. Each of us has spiritual gifts that we ought to be maximizing for God's kingdom. Each of us has neighbors and co-workers that we ought to be inviting into God's kingdom. Each of us has roles in the church that we ought to be performing on behalf of God's kingdom. Each of us has prayers that we ought to be praying that God's kingdom would come. All of us have a role in the house. All of us have servants' clothes that we are to put on. They're not always the same clothes, but we all have them. But what are you doing with what God has called you to do? Are you doing what He's called you to do? And are you doing it not just halfway, and not just sufficiently, 
so that the master won't be mad at you when he comes? Are you doing what God has called you to do so faithfully, so dedicatedly, that when Jesus comes back, he will actually be joyful over what you've done? Are you doing what you're doing so that if Jesus were to come back and walk through the door of the auditorium before the end of the service, you wouldn't have to hang your head in shame? Well, to some extent, all of us could say, no, I'm not. But we ought to be approximating to the servants in this story. Will he find you doing what they were doing when he someday returns or when your name is called and when you breathe your last? Look at your schedule, for instance. Does it appear most weeks that you're simply waiting for the weekend or that you're waiting for something far more significant? And then listen to your prayers. Does it sound as though you mainly want help and comfort in this world? Or does it sound as though you believe that Jesus is coming from outside of this world to judge those who are without Christ? Look at your bank account as well. Do the numbers reflect that you're getting ready for a posh retirement or that you're getting ready for the second coming of the Son of God? If it's the latter, and I hope it is, if it's the latter, then let verse 37 simply spur you on to keep going and not to lose heart. Someday Jesus will return. Someday you will see Him. And if you've been faithful, He will have His apron on, ready to bless you, ready to serve you who have so dedicatedly served Him. However, if you're not dressed in readiness, you need to take seriously the second parable. We'll call this one not ready. The first parable is ready. The second parable is not ready. Verses 39 and 40. And you'll see there in verse 39 that Jesus now is painting a different picture. Now he's painting a picture of a man who's gone to sleep at night or maybe gone off to work in the morning or perhaps gone off on a journey. And while he's asleep or while he's away, someone sneaks into his home and walks off with a camcorder and a couple of leather coats and a printer and a Dell and Spiron 5150 laptop. Okay, maybe that's not all in the story. But if you're here at our Christmas dinner, you can put yourself into verse 39, can't you? And we can see what Jesus is saying. If we had known on December 20th that sometime between 7 p.m. and 7.20 p.m. a few thousand dollars worth of stuff was going to walk away from our building, then we'd have locked the doors. Or we would have stationed one of the men downstairs to catch the thieves. But we didn't know, did we? The thieves came at an hour we did not expect. And so, Jesus says, it will be at the second coming. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, there are many people in precisely the position of this man in verse 39 as regards to Jesus' return to this earth. They know that there's potentially something they need to be getting ready for. They know that devastation might await them if they are not ready. But they think to themselves, it won't happen tonight. I'm sure everything will be fine tonight. No need to lock the doors. No need to set the alarm. No need to make any special preparations. Tonight, I'm sure, will be just like every other night. That's what the man in verse 39 thought. And I'm sure that if someone could convince such a person that Jesus Christ really would be back tonight or that they would die, really would die tonight, they would live quite differently. 
Just like the man who's been tipped off that somebody's been casing his house for the last two weeks will live differently. So I say if people only knew that Jesus was coming back tonight or that they were going to die tonight, many of them would make amends for the things that they've done, the people they've harmed. Many of them would cry out to God for forgiveness and they would be begging their friends to do the same. But as they say, I'm sure Jesus is not coming back tonight, actually. So I'll do all those things eventually, but for now I've got my life to live. I want to enjoy this world while I still have the chance. And the problem with that viewpoint is twofold. First, even if we did know precisely when Jesus would return or exactly when we would breathe our last breath, would it be right for us to waste all the intervening time living for ourselves just because, well, I've got time to spare? Of course not. To delay repentance and to delay living a godly life in hopes of repenting at the last moment but getting as much sin in in between now and then as possible is a slap in God's face. And while some people, praise God, do genuinely repent on their deathbeds, it's a grievous sin if we intentionally wait until the last moment so that we can have as much sinful pleasure as possible and still go to heaven. But there's another problem with waiting to the last minute. And that's the point of this passage. Most of the time, we don't know when the last minute will be, do we? Most people have no idea when it will be their time to die. And no one has any idea when the Son of Man will return. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son Himself, Jesus says. It could, in fact, be tonight. So to delay in coming to Christ or having come to Christ, to delay serving Him with all of your heart is not only sinful, but it's downright foolish. For what if Jesus had returned this week and found some of us doing the things that we were doing this week? What if He had returned and we never shared Jesus with that neighbor? What if he had returned to find some of us ourselves never having truly repented of our sins and placed our faith in him? If you thought we were kicking ourselves for being caught so off guard at the Christmas dinner, what will some of our last moments on this earth be like if we dilly-dally? Be ready for the Son of Man is coming, he says, at an hour you do not expect. In fact, let me just ask you, what would you do differently if the Son of Man were coming at an hour that you did expect. In other words, let's say that I could convince you beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus was coming back on August 1st at 6 p.m., four weeks from today. What would you do differently if you knew that was true? Some of you might stop playing church and get serious about repenting of your sins and crying out to God for mercy. Some of you would no longer find it sufficient to salve your conscience by saying, well, I know I walked the aisle at such and such a place and I was baptized by pastor so-and-so and so I know everything's just fine. No, if we knew that we were going to die in four weeks or that Jesus was going to return four weeks from today, none of us would content ourselves, Lord willing, until we knew that we had laid hold of Jesus himself in prayer. Not just the pastor's hand, but Jesus himself and in genuine, heartfelt Repentance. And then, what about those of you who are Christians? 
who have repented of your sins, who are trusting Christ, what would you do differently if you knew Christ was coming on August the 1st at 6 p.m.? What would I do differently? Might some of us stop being so irritable with our families? Might some of us make every effort to repair that long broken relationship? Might some of us find it in our hearts to be more serious about forgiving other people? Might some of us stop wasting our lives away staring at the television like animals at the zoo who have nothing better to do but to stare off into space all day? If we knew Jesus was coming, might some of us give more generously and sacrificially our money to gospel endeavors? Might we plead more earnestly with our neighbors to repent of their sins and trust in Christ? I think we would. And so I'm just asking myself and asking you to honestly consider this question. What would I do if I knew Jesus was going to come to this earth four weeks from today? And then let me ask you a second question. How do you know that he's not? It's not hypothetical this morning. In fact, how do you know that God will keep you alive for four more weeks? How do you know that your death or Christ's return will not happen before this sermon is complete? You don't. That's the point. And neither do I. We don't know that the hour, the hour that the thief is coming. We don't know the hour that the Son of Man is coming. We don't know if our neighbors and co-workers who are outside of Christ will live that long either. But be sure of this, Jesus says, if the head of the house had known... At what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect him. And again, the point is simply this. Since we don't know when Jesus is coming or when we'll leave this world in death, we need to live every day in readiness. We need to care for people's souls every day. We need to confess our sins and battle against them every day. We need to make our calling and election sure every day. So I simply ask you one more time, before we leave this point, what do you need to do to get yourself or keep yourself dressed in readiness? There was a parable about being ready, a parable about not being ready, and thirdly, we'll look at this longer parable and we'll call it willfully negligent, verses 41 through 48. Willfully negligent. Negligent. These final eight verses comprise a story that's not so much about the group of servants that Jesus mentions, but about a single servant or steward, as he's called in verse 42, who's been placed in charge of all the rest of the servants. It's really about this one man. His master has evidently gone away on some sort of journey, and he's left this steward the job of feeding the rest of the wait staff of making sure, verse 42b, that each of his fellows has their daily rations apportioned to him. And if he's faithful in verses 43 and 44, there will be a great reward for him. On the other hand, if he abuses his privilege in verses 45 and 46, his master will return from his trip and, quote, cut him in pieces. Now there's a difference between this story and the last one, isn't Isn't there? There's a difference between the steward... In verse 42, and the man who is asleep in his house in verse 39. The steward 
is not simply ignorant of or unprepared for what might befall him. He's not exactly like the man in verse 39. No, the steward in verses 45 through 46 is not merely unprepared. He is willfully negligent and self-indulgent and rebellious as to his master's instructions. And there's a difference, as we're going to see, between a person who is careless about his or her soul and careless about God's will, bad as that is, There's a difference between that and a person who is high-handed in opposing God's will and exploiting God's people. But who exactly is Jesus talking about in this story? Who does this steward symbolize? Well, remember Peter's question in verse 41. After the first two parables, Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And he apparently asked that on behalf of the disciples, because he asked, are you addressing us? So the disciples were wanting to know, is this parable that you just told about being ready and not being caught off guard when the thief comes, is that about us, disciples, or is that about everybody else? In other words, are you saying that we disciples should be concerned about what may happen to us at your second coming? Or are these frightening warnings just for unbelievers? Well, Jesus doesn't actually answer his question, does he? Instead, he simply tells another story. I think as though to say to Peter, if you weren't sure that the previous parable was about you, let me give you one that will hit far closer to home. And that's exactly what the story in verses 42 through 48 is. It's a warning exactly to people like Peter and the other disciples. How so? Well, remember that Peter and James and John and the other nine were being trained to be Jesus' Stewards, they were being trained so that when Jesus left this world, when he went away on a journey, so to speak, it would be these disciples who would provide spiritual food for the rest of Jesus' servants. It would be their job, just like the man in verse 42, to give God's servants their rations at the proper time. The same as it is for pastors and elders and missionaries and teachers and evangelists to do today. They were and we are God's stewards left in the world to feed God's people. And the point of the parable is that if those stewards, whether it be Peter and James and John or Keith and Charles and Court, if those stewards fail to do their job, if those stewards squander and abuse their positions of authority, if those stewards don't live in all godliness before the rest of God's people, Jesus will return, he says, and cut them in pieces. Verse 46. Unless there be any confusion as to what Jesus means by cutting the steward in pieces, he explains it further at the end of the verse there. Verse 46b. At the master's coming, the unrighteous steward will be cut in pieces and assigned a place with the unbelievers. In other words, the unrighteous steward will go where unbelievers will go when the master returns, namely to the lake of fire. Now, some will ask, are preachers and missionaries and church elders really going to go to hell? Well, Jesus says that for some of them, the answer is undoubtedly yes. Yes, they will. And it's not because they've lost their salvation. It's because if a man can live the way the steward lived in verses 45 and 46, if a man can accept the assignment to give God's sheep their spiritual rations at the proper time and still live self-indulgently, still 
pursue selfish gain, still lord his position over the people for whom he's supposed to care. I say, if a man can do all of that, and if he remains in that condition when Jesus comes or when he breathes his last, then he will have proven that his heart was never with his master in the first place. He will have proven that the heart of stone was never removed and the heart of flesh was never placed inside of him. He will have proven this pastor or missionary or elder or teacher or evangelist that he never was a Christian in the first place. And so he will be assigned with a place with unbelievers because that's exactly what he is. Seminary degree and all. So this is a frightening passage for anyone who proposes to teach the Bible or lead God's church. And it's a passage, therefore, that ought to make you all moved to pray all the more diligently for Charles and Keith and myself. None of us is beyond the need of God's help in these matters. None of us is so strong that verses 45 and 46 could never happen to us. And yet none of us is so weak that God could not make us incredibly faithful by your prayer. So please pray for us and then listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, says about these same matters. James 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur stricter judgment. I think that's the same thing Jesus is saying in this passage, especially in verses 47 and 48. Those who have greater responsibility and greater opportunity of knowing God's Word will incur stricter judgment and indeed, Jesus says, a more severe penalty, verse 47 if they are willfully negligent in preparing themselves and God's people for the coming of Jesus. Notice those verses 47 and 48. The slave that knows his master's will and continues in disobedience nonetheless will receive more lashes, verse 47, than the one who committed the same sins but with less knowledge and less responsibility. Now that warning is primarily addressed to spiritual leaders as we've been saying. But I believe that the principle Jesus lays down in verses 47 and 48 is broad enough so as to apply more generally, so as to apply to each of us in the room this morning. So with that in mind, let me read to you verses 47 and 48 again. Hear them now, not just for Charles and Keith and I, but for yourselves. That slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more. Now did you see the contrast that Jesus makes in verses 47 and 48? I believe what Jesus is doing in these two verses is arguing that there will be degrees of punishment in hell. I think he argues in 1 Corinthians 3 that there will be degrees of reward in heaven in proportion to our faithfulness to him on this earth. And here in verses 47 and 48, he's arguing that God's economy works the same way in hell. In other words, when Jesus returns to judge the world, every sinner who is outside of Christ will be flogged. Make no mistake about that. The man in verse 47 and the man in verse 48 were both flogged. The sinner with great knowledge and privilege, verse 47, and the sinner with less knowledge and privilege, verse 48, will both be flogged, Jesus says. And rightly so. For even the sinner who, as Jesus puts it, did not know his master's will, is not wholly ignorant of God. Doesn't Paul argue in Romans 1 that every human being on the planet has seen enough in creation? Romans 1, 18 through 21 
has seen enough in creation to know that there is a God and that this God should be honored? Everyone knows that, at least. And yet, though everyone knows those two facts, no person on this planet honors God as he should. So the flogging in verse 48 is not unfair. Everyone knows enough about God to have sinned willfully against him. But some people, Jesus argues in verse 47, know far more than others. Some people, Jesus argues in verse 47, sin far more willfully than others. And if those people refuse to repent, if they refuse to turn to Christ and live for his praise, their flogging will be all the worse for it. Their hell will be all the more excruciating for it. That slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. In other words, it's bad enough. And it's inexcusable if we grew up in a pagan atmosphere and are largely ignorant of God's word and his ways. It's bad enough even to sin against the little bit of knowledge of God that we do have in that situation. But it's far more inexcusable to have had the opportunity that many of us have had, indeed that all of us are having right now this moment, to have been taught the word of God, some of us for decades now, to have been given the privilege of hearing the word preached, of having the best translations of the Bible, of having all sorts of resources available to us, it's far more inexcusable if we who have had those privileges continue in self-indulgence and willful negligence regarding Jesus' coming, regarding the reality of our death and eternity beyond it. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying by implication that all of us are in a very dangerous place this morning. It is a dangerous thing for you to walk through those back doors and to come hear God's word week in and week out. Why? Because from everyone who's been given much, much will be required. And because, verse 47, if we know the master's will and we still dig in our heels against Christ, we still refuse to repent of our sins, we still refuse to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, our hell, Jesus is saying, will be all the hotter. In fact... Every Sunday that you or I walk out of this building without being moved to follow Jesus, without being committed to repent of our sins and to cling to Christ alone, every Sunday like that is another coal in the furnace of our hell. So the gathering of believers is a dangerous place for us to be. But it's also the most wonderful place in the world because every single week we do have the privilege, some of us several times a week, if we avail ourselves of all the opportunity, we have the privilege of hearing God's Word so that we might repent, so that we might truly know Christ, so that we might actually be ready when Jesus returns. It's a wonderful privilege, but a dangerous thing if we neglect it. Indeed, you've been having that privilege this morning. Haven't you? So I say to you, if you can say honestly, albeit imperfectly, that you have been waiting for your master, like the servants in verses 35 through 38. Not perfectly, but if you're waiting for Jesus, you're working until he comes, then I say to you this morning, keep going, keep watching, keep waiting, and excel still more. He will be here with his apron on sooner than you think, and you will dine at his banqueting table. But if you can look at your life and clearly see that you're squandering the opportunities that God's giving you, that you are not dressed in readiness, that you are not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, then repent. 
even now. Turn your heart to Christ even now. And not just because you want to be forgiven and go to heaven and not be caught off guard at the last day, but repent and turn to Christ even now because with whatever time you have left in this world, you want to serve your Master with all of your heart. So flee to Christ as your rock of refuge. Hide in Him like Moses hid in the cleft of the rock when the glory of God passed by. The rock protected him and shadowed him. Christ will be that for you. Flee to Him as your rock of refuge today. And the promise of verse 37 will be yours. Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you that He will gird Himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them.